Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. It was a very long time ago when business first landed on the belief system that worker happiness and well-being must be sacrificed in the interest of driving profits. Rather than urge a win-win, traditional leadership theory advised business owners to pay people as little as possible and to squeeze as much out of them as possible. And we've long accepted this as being normal. Or at least, we all accepted that this is just how companies have always been run. But starting three years ago, a once-in-a-lifetime global event changed employee mindsets in the most profound way. During and following the COVID pandemic, people all around the world had the same shared epiphany that their work could no longer lack meaning and purpose. And because the shortness of their lives was suddenly brought into clear focus, people finally decided that working for a manager and an organization that didn't care about them and their needs was suddenly instantly out of the question. In America alone, an astonishing 100 million people quit their jobs between 2021 and 2022, inherently sending a direct message to leaders everywhere that they needed to reinvent themselves and their leadership practices and to get to it quickly. If it's not already really clear to everyone listening here, People's expectations of what they should receive in exchange for work has permanently changed. Leaders and companies that fail to see this very moment as a major inflection point will pay dearly for it through continued turnover and an inability to attract highly talented and motivated workers. Just a few weeks ago, Microsoft's Chief Human Resource Officer, Kathleen Hogan, wrote an article titled, We Are Experiencing a Global Human Energy Crisis. Her assertion was that workers everywhere have become highly dispirited by traditional leadership practices and that companies are suffering for it as a result. And the Wall Street Journal is clearly paying attention to employee sentiments and recently noted that worker disengagement, disengagement, has reached all-time highs. Today, 20% of all American workers, one in five, are so miserable in their jobs that they've effectively become saboteurs in their own companies. And none of this, my friend, can any longer be seen as normal. As we end the season of this podcast, I wanted to bring on a guest who could confirm with compelling data that all of the leadership solutions we've discussed here for all of the past 110 episodes are indeed what's needed to restore employee commitment and thriving. And as our first third-time guest, Gallup's longtime chief scientist, Dr. Jim Harder, joins us to share his state-of-the-art research on the future of remote work, the essential leadership practices workplace managers now must adopt, and the harm to customer satisfaction companies already are experiencing by having such low employee engagement. As Jim has joined us twice before, this episode does not include a heartbeat round, but by coincidence, Jim and Gallup CEO Jim Clifton are about to publish a new book along with their annual global workplace study. And so this entire episode is extremely meaty, timely, and informative. Jim's new book called Culture Shock, An Unstoppable Force Has Changed How We Work and Live, Gallup's solution to the biggest issue of our time comes out in late May, but we're fortunate to get an in-depth look into their findings right now. 
And after Jim and I completed recording our conversation, I left with the massive validation that leading from and with the heart is indeed the essential missing piece in workplace leadership, and that firms can no longer hesitate to embrace our philosophy. Very much hope you feel the same way by the time you finish listening to this podcast. And with that, let's get going. For the third time, Jim Harder, welcome to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. Great to be with you again. Well, I don't think I've actually told you that, but we've never had anybody on the podcast more than twice. And there's really only one other person, and that is Amy Edmondson from Harvard Business School. But you're the first to be on the third time. And that's with great intention because there just seems like a lot of disruption in the world of business right now with respect to leadership. And I just thought you'd be perfect for where we are to kind of help explain to a lot of interested listeners and leaders as to what's really happening here. So let me set the stage, Jim. Microsoft's chief human resource officer, Kathleen Hogan, wrote an article titled, We Are Experiencing a Global Human Energy Crisis. And this was just recently. And I think her headline got a lot of heads nodding, but mm -hmm. since Gallup is soon going to be releasing its annual global workplace study, I thought I'd start off by asking you for your overall assessment of workplace leadership today. Yeah, I love her word combination there, Kathleen Hogan, and human energy crisis, I think, is a really good way to conceptualize it. And I tend to think of managers as the origin of human energy in the workplace and really builders of economic energy. I guess my overall analysis is that the state of leadership isn't great in general, but I'm also optimistic and I've seen some exceptional leadership done in some pockets and some organizations where they've been very successful in not only engaging workers and building high levels of human energy, but also achieving the kinds of outcomes that they're looking for. And I've seen this during good times and bad times. Organizations can be very resilient if they have the right focus and if they develop managers continuously. And there's no time when it's been more important, probably, to have great managing than right now, because managing is, and leadership in general, is more difficult, probably, than it's ever been, in addition to all the all the challenges that came pre-pandemic and the trends pre-pandemic. The pandemic brought to us massive increases in hybrid work and fully remote work, and people experienced work in a very different way, and organizations navigating their way through that is an added challenge that I think most organizations still haven't solved. So when she says we're experiencing a global human energy crisis, pin that down. What's your interpretation of that? What's the cause of it? What's the solution? Well, I think on one side, there's a high percentage of people in the world, you know, about eight out of 10 that are either not engaged or actively disengaged at work. And you could use some other labels that have been put in front of people lately called quiet quitting. And we'd also say loud quitting. The people that have been very vocal about wanting to separate from their employer psychologically. So we've even seen this in our data. We've seen in the U.S., we've seen drops in satisfaction with their employer. People are much less clear on expectations and on what they're expected to do. And this has been particularly a pattern among younger workers in the last couple of years where they just feel less connected to their employer. That's a problem because they're not going to bring their full selves to work. You know, people can say, well, I'm going to quietly quit and just do the minimum required. But in today's workplaces, it's very difficult to do that because most organizations have values. They have discretionary actions that they expect people to engage in. If you're going to meet customer needs and meet your colleagues' needs, it's not pre-programmed. You've got to be spontaneous and you've got to respond to challenges as they occur. 
So I think human energy crisis on one side is the level of engagement, but also it's about can people bring their full selves to work every day? And there's been a lot of emphasis on the mental health in the workplace. We've seen record high levels of stress among the working population. And so that affects energy. You sense a lot of stress on any given day. What's the sources of the stress, Jim, and what's changed? Why is there a crisis in this moment specifically? Well, it's been trending up for over a decade, but we saw particularly as the pandemic hit, we saw like a five-point global increase in stress, and it's still at a record level. of So 44% of workers around the world report a lot of stress the previous day. So they're reporting a lot of stress in the moment. So the source really is a combination of what people are experiencing at work and the blending of work and life and whether that is working in the right kind of way. So when work is less predictable, I think that causes high levels of stress. And I think it's management's job to figure that out and be in touch with people so that when people come to work, they do know what's expected of them. They have chances to develop. We've even seen among young people significant declines in them reporting they have an opportunity to develop. And young people in general, Mark, have historically reported higher levels of development than older people, probably because there's more investment they need to develop to get to where they need to be in the organization and to help the organization succeed. And and so development and opportunities to learn and grow have dropped significantly, particularly for younger people. Is part of the stress and the mental health issues connected to a lack of boundaries? Do you have any feelings one way or the other in terms of really clearly defining when someone's workday starts and ends? I think the boundary issue is part of it and having some definitions. One of the things that we've seen in our data is is that you're seeing leadership kind of go one of two directions, and we'll probably get to this in more detail, but in one direction, they're saying, get back to the office. In another direction, they're saying, do what you need to do for yourself, and there's no coordination. And an important part of getting this new hybrid workplace right, which I believe from everything we've looked at, workplaces can be more productive than ever in a hybrid environment, but we have to have coordination with it. And it takes strong leadership and good management to coordinate effectively so people do know when their colleagues are going to be together with them and that we still put a lot of emphasis on for people that are in remote-ready jobs and do have the opportunity to be with their colleagues and, and live within a distance where they can, that we make sure that happens because as you and I both know, in-person time matters a lot mm-hmm. and is a big factor. There are things that happen spontaneously for people at work when they're together that just don't happen otherwise where they have to kind of try to pre-program meetings and anticipate issues that might be coming up spontaneously. To give you an example, I was with a team on site and we solved a problem that came up in 10 minutes. And if we wouldn't have been together, it might have been delayed. We might have waited for someone to schedule a meeting about it. And it happened immediately. And that's the kind of thing that can happen in person that you just can't. And in addition to, you know, all the parts of human nature that just work better when we can see each other. One of my takeaways from all of our research on social time is that being together is important. The in-person time is important, but the total amount of time is less important than the fact that it happens. There's trust that's built when people are together. And I think that's part of what's driving leaders to say, some leaders to say, we all need to be together all the time. That's kind of an extreme view. And then others that want to give credit to the autonomy and the freedom that people have experienced and to say, you can figure this out for yourself. But there's something missing. And we've got a obligation to our colleagues also to coordinate. And if we don't get that right, you know, it does cause some issue in terms of the continuity between work and life and people that are working remotely. I think many people have experienced that they just keep working and they don't have starts and stops like they used to have, and and there's some adjustment there as well. 
predictability of work, I think, is an important factor. I want to dig into engagement before we come back to, because there are some organizations that I think you're referencing that are leaning very strongly into, you need to be back in the office. But before we get to those, you launched this employee engagement study over 20 years ago at Gallup, and mm-hmm. I've had a chance to read your new book, and I was actually surprised and astonished, really, that engagement has reached a seven-year low. So you would think that it would have improved all the discussions around engagement and coming out of this pandemic and all the stress that it caused on people. You'd think that engagement would be improving, if not significantly. So my big question to you is, do CEOs, have they ever taken this seriously? And I guess the big question is, why should they now? Yeah, so before we saw the recent drop, which you accurately stated is a seven-year low, we saw a decade of growth. A lot of that's been canceled out in recent years, but we did see organizations taking it more seriously. We saw steady growth in engagement for some time, and now there's sort of a reset. Work and life have changed significantly, and so organizations are having to reset and recalibrate how they go about things, and they've had to take a step back. I guess my answer to your question is some organizations have really done it right and have been exceptionally good. Organizations in general, if we look at the aggregate data, so I've got the honor of being able to study, dig deep inside organizations and see some that are really doing it right. But I also have a chance to see the aggregate data and see these trends that we're talking about where in aggregate organizations are having to take a step back and recalibrate and figure things out. And that's causing some issues with engagement, particularly clarity and some of the basics are dropping. I should also note that we've seen some drops in people feeling the organization cares about their overall well-being. So that's kind of related to that human energy crisis as well. So the good news is we know what works and what can work even right now. We've got our Gallup Exceptional Workplace Award winners, over 50 companies that have done really well and have over, while the U.S. average is 32% of engaged workers through the end of 2022. Globally, it's just a little over 20%. But these companies, by our metric, which is a really high bar metric and links to all kinds of performance outcomes, they're over 70% of engaged employees. So there's some organizations out there doing a really exceptional job, but it's not enough of them. And I'd say organizations in general are, again, kind of taking a step back and have to kind of reestablish their commitment. I think what they're forced to take more seriously is the relationship with customers. And of course, employee engagement relates to customers. If the goal is to improve customer loyalty, customer satisfaction, customer retention, then that starts with employees feeling highly responsible for the quality of service they receive. And we've seen significant declines in employees saying they feel responsible and feel pride in the quality of service their customers receive. So it starts right there with the commitment employees have. And if they come to work and they don't feel that expectations are clear and that they have opportunities to develop and do what they do best inside their organization, they're going to start separating from the employer and not feel as committed. And that's kind of where we're starting to see it. We're seeing declines, particularly among young workers, whether they're working remote or not, and then older workers who are fully remote, we're seeing, I say older, 35 plus and younger, I'm talking about Gen Z and younger millennial workers, regardless of where they're working, we're seeing less commitment to customers. That was something that was interesting to me when reading your book was the connection that you made. If businesses are focusing on the customer and they're ignoring the employee connection, and that was what you were trying to underscore, Mm -hmm. if you want your customers to be loyal and you want your customers to do more business with you, then the attention needs to be placed on equivalently on your employees. Because if your employees lose heart, 
then they're not really going to care one way or the other, even if they're compensated, if somebody decides to go somewhere else or they just don't put in enough effort to really reinforce those relationships. Yeah, that's exactly it, Mark. And when employees don't have their needs met and they don't have managers who are in touch with them, no matter where they're working, and uh, help them reestablish their goals and priorities and check in with them. And we'll come back to this, but having at least one meaningful conversation with them every week, then they're going to feel less commitment. You know, why should I take care of our customers if nobody's taking care of me? You know, if nobody's really thinking with me about my work, most of them come into the work one to make a difference with customers and one to make a difference in terms of helping the organization improve. But if they don't have the resources and the support that they need and if their own needs aren't met and if they don't have a manager who thinks with them about, you know, their own situation and their strengths, that's why we're seeing declines. The University of Michigan has been reporting some consistent declines in recent years on customer satisfaction. And uh, that's really troubling and problematic for organizations, but it can be fixed. So again, I'm optimistic about this because I know there's a way to get it fixed. Beyond having one-on-one meetings every week with one's employees, what are specific things that managers can do to demonstrate to their people that they are cared about, that they're valued, that they matter, and that they're appreciated? The reason for those one-on-one, once-a-week meetings is to listen. And that's kind of the art of leadership and management that sometimes gets forgotten about is to listen. What I mean by listen is managers are in the only position in organizations to really know the situation of each employee. It's hard for an executive leader to know if they've got a large organization to know what's going on in each employee's world and to align that situation with high performance. You know, think with them about their individual performance, to think with them about the value they're bringing to customers and to think with them about how they collaborate with their team effectively. That's the role of managers. And also to think with them about their life overall. There's some low-hanging fruit around this, Mark, that it's pretty straightforward stuff that great managers do. One is involve people in their own goals, you know, setting their own goals. Just involve them. And that's part of listening too, is to get their ownership around it. We just studied with Work Human and we found that only 10% of people are asked how they like to be recognized. 10%. Low-hanging fruit, just ask ask people and listen to them about that. If you think about how you might segment workers, half of workers say that they prefer work and life to be separated, work and the rest of their life to be separated. The other half, we call them splitters. The other half, we call blenders, are the people that prefer their work and life is mixed. You can easily find that out about somebody if you ask, but most people don't. Even among younger workers, you go to Gen Z and younger millennials, and it's almost equally 50-50. People might think, well, these younger people are going to want blended because they got all this technology that they're used to. There's something psychologically in us where you know, some of it's related to our, our life situation at the time. You know, Some people have kids at home, but there's also part of it that's just preference. And managers can learn that about somebody and accommodate for that. So knowing those kinds of things about employees, I think, is really important. And it's not that difficult to learn, but oftentimes managers don't take the time to do that. I remember being at Google and they introduced the terms integrators and segmenters. So those are synonymous with what you've come Mm, up with. That's very similar, yeah. And, you know, it seemed at the time because technology was allowing us to have access to work 24-7 that people seemed to be leaning into being an integrator, even though society, you know, I remember my dad, you know, he had a very, very big job, but, you know, he'd get on the train at night coming home from New York City and that was the end of it. <laughs> there was no BlackBerry, there was mm-hmm. no iPhone, there was no way to have contact with work. And so they had that normal break. 
So I found it interesting that it was a 50-50 split. So if you had to predict five years from now, where do you think it would be? It surprised me those 50-50, given that we conducted that research during you know the aftermath of the pandemic and people's changed work. And we know that right now that 90% of people in remote ready jobs prefer some type of remote work in their job where it's you know not 100% in the office. So with that preference, I would have predicted that there's more of those blenders or as, as you said, Google called it integrators. So I, I would anticipate that given that we have such an extreme change in work and it's still 50-50, I would think it's probably not going to be much different going forward. People just think differently about work and life. We need to know that about them. And both can be highly productive. You know, we found equal levels of engagement in both groups. You know, you might think, well, a blender is going to be higher or a splitter is going to be higher. We found both can be successful if we know that about them. And, you know, you can have people who split work and life who just put a ton of energy into the eight hours or however long they work and they recoup their energy afterwards. And other people get energy from working in different spurts throughout the day. So it's probably good that we have both also probably meet more customer needs that way. One of the other things that I wanted to ask you, you and I had a conversation when I was writing the second edition of my book. This was probably a year ago, maybe just a little bit longer than that. Mm -hmm. And you told me that during 2020, during the height of the pandemic, that engagement hit about 40%. And this is in the United States, Mm -hmm. which I think is a record. Yeah. So obviously we're now back to 30%. So what happened? What were managers doing back then that led to a 40% engagement level that they may not be doing or aren't specifically doing today that has produced the 30% or at least contributed to it? I think part of what happens sometimes in organizations is there's sort of a rally effect. We had something hit us that nobody had seen before in terms of its effects so quickly. And there was a rally effect. Almost half of people reported that their organization cares about their overall well-being. Organizations were immediately really good in terms of reacting with communication plans. Here's what we're doing. Listened to people, accommodated them. I think that managers reached out, but I think they took their eye off the ball after that. And people started figuring out their new ways of working and learning. And I think the default was that when we're in offices together, and on location together, we know that we're going to have opportunities to interact in the future and we can put off today's interaction knowing that it's likely to happen the next day. And if we start thinking that way in a remote environment, it just doesn't happen as often. And I think people learn different ways of working. And I think when people were separated like they were, it created psychological separation and uh, we started to see a drop. The big drop happened the second half of 2021 and then it carried over into 2022. And it kind of coincided with what was called the great resignation. So there's a surge of people feeling the organization cares about their well-being that sort of started to dissipate over time gradually and really hit where people had some pent-up frustration with their employer. And that led to some of the resignations when people realized they could do some things differently. People had a chance to reflect on their work in a different way than they ever had before. They cut out the commute, realized that the commute wasn't as necessary as they thought it was originally. And I think a lot of people are still trying to figure out, is the return on investment there if I take the time to drive into the office? So there's all that that organizations are dealing with now. But I think the new ways of working and the learnings that people had and the the separation itself between people led to less clear expectations. If people are unclear about something and they're together, they can clear it up pretty quickly. If if it's from a distance, there's got to be something scheduled and it's just a more difficult thing to manage. So you mentioned the great resignation. 
And 100 million people quit their jobs in America alone in mm-hmm. 2021 and 2022 combined, almost 100 million. So mm-hmm. what's Gallup's take on that? What caused it? Are CEOs thinking that they need to do anything to remedy this? What's the insight that we need to take away from this? The insight that I took away from it was that people remember what happens in their organizations and that memory carries forward. And when they have other opportunities, they're willing to act on it. So when people didn't have the kinds of experiences they're looking for during the pandemic, let's say they're frustrated with clarity of expectations, they had a chance to look around them and see other opportunities that are out there. And they had a chance to experience in behavioral economics called an endowment effect basically where that's new freedom that they experienced in terms of when and where they work. And it's much more difficult for someone to give up something that they've gained than the value in getting it in the first place. And that's the endowment effect. So that sense of freedom not only led people to reconsider, but it also, as they were reconsidering, they considered the experiences that they had in their employer and that pent up frustration combined with opportunity led to people did quit their jobs, but might even think of it as a reshuffling. I think all of those experiences were remembered and considered in the reconsideration of other opportunities that were out there and people jumped on them because they saw opportunities, whether they would accommodate their newfound remote work preference or whether they just appeared to be more fulfilling types of work that they could do. And they put more value on what work can bring, I think. So one thing that you said at the beginning of this is that they reflected on previous experiences at work and how those experiences made them feel, which then influenced them to be sort of binary. Like, I'm willing to look for another job or I'm happy here. But 100 million people quit. So what were the experiences that people were leaving? What were the things that they were remembering about their work experience that made them or influenced them to say, I need to go look for another job behaviorally? A big one is their relationship with their manager. You know, if they do good work, do they get recognized for it? When they get started working, do they clearly know what their role is or is it somewhat confusing? Do they see the value that they bring to customers? Do they have a chance to use their strengths at work and do what they do best every day? But, you know, ultimately it's about whether they have a manager who cares about them and is thinking about their work-life situation. And like we've talked about before, managers can get really good at that if they have the right skills and, and know what to aim at. But all those experiences that lead to engagement, we had a chance to track and we, we asked people why they left and certainly pay came to the top of the list, but it's only like 15% of people reported that pay was an issue, but two thirds of people either referenced engagement related reasons or well-being related reasons. And most of them were engagement related reasons, like I was just mentioning, you know, whether they felt recognized, whether they felt like their job was interesting and they had a chance to do what they do best. Do they see opportunities to develop inside the organization or not? If people can't see their future in the organization, they're going to be much more likely to leave and look for other opportunities. And I think there was an opportunity for a lot more reflection. But again, two-thirds of reasons were related to how people generally become engaged at work and, and whether they feel their work-life situation is right, whether that was their work location or the commute or, or how work and life blend together. Probably the question that people ask me personally the most is, how can you expect people to produce when you are a caring manager? What they're conflating is is that one contradicts the other. 
But there is this common assumption that, you know, you, if you treat people well, then they're going to take advantage of you. They're going to get soft around the middle. They're mm-hmm. going to come in late. They're going to do less, which, of course, it's the opposite. How would you punctuate that? You got to kind of break down what people mean by caring. There can be an assumption that caring is going to create some bias. But if you really kind of break down what people want when they think about a manager who really cares about them, most people come to work wanting to make a difference. And caring means that if you are confused about what your role is at work, that I help you clear that up so that you do have a clear path forward. And it means that if you have some material and equipment needs to do your work right, I clear that up for you. I make that work. We have a good discussion about what you really need to meet customer needs or to meet needs with your colleagues to get a performance done. It means that I understand you based on who you are as an individual whether that's you know your preferences for work and life like we talked about before or at Gallup, we put a lot of emphasis on strengths and do I know you based on your innate strengths and how you can leverage those strengths effectively? So do I know you as a person first? To care about somebody, you have to know them. And great managers take the time to listen to people and get to know them. And it doesn't mean they're not going to make tough decisions. The best managers will have tough discussions when they need to, but they will have built trust so they can have those discussions and they don't repel people away. People understand why the discussion is happening. So caring and toughness are not opposites in that sense. There are some elements that go into people feeling that they're cared about, and they tend to be the basics of work and setting people up so they can be successful, so they can be recognized for what they've achieved, and that they see that they've got a future in the organization. That's caring. And when people see that, they're going to perform at much higher levels, and you can have objective discussions with them about performance and even tough discussions at times. Something else that you mentioned in the book has to do with culture, and it seems organizational culture is really eroded in terms of its impact on people because you said that only two in 10 American workers strongly agree that they feel connected to their company's culture. So what's happening there? How do they restore that? How do we restore that? A company culture has never been as strong as people have thought. Hmm. So that's one piece of it. But the second piece is it is eroding even more. People, on average, they feel more distance between themselves and their employer. So there's a lot of indications of that, both how they report, feeling responsible for the quality of service customers receive, that's an indicator, and also whether they say they're extremely satisfied with their employer as a place to work, that's dropped as well. So how do we fix that? Well, people feeling connected to their culture starts with first and foremost with some of the things we're talking about earlier with whether they have their basic workplace needs met or not. If people want to work and they don't have the resources or don't have a manager who is in touch with them and provides them a clear role, has ongoing conversations with them and builds a level of accountability, they're probably not going to feel real connected to the company's culture because they're going to view their company through that local manager experience that they have. And most people join organizations because they do want to be a part of something bigger and they do want to feel connected to the culture of the organization. But a lot of that can be fixed through what managers do every day with employees, the kinds of discussions that they have with them and how they create an environment where employees can succeed. You know, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about what's going on this late April and in the last four or five weeks, we've seen many, many companies, uh, primarily in technology, but not exclusively laying people off. You know, we hear these CEOs talking about vision and culture and well-being and how much they value people. And then you're seeing these companies laying people off and they're not even trying to do hiring freezes or some kind of an alternative to letting people go. They're letting thousands of people go and then they're doing it in Zoom calls 
and emails, almost inhumanely from an outsider's point of view. And and I'm wondering, just like the maybe the most important question I had for you as I was looking forward to talking to you, is there any research that would suggest that companies are going to pay a price for laying off people like this and meeting so many of them? And also, more specifically, in the manner in which they're doing it. You know, how I can address that for you, Mark, is through the concept of respect. And one of the most toxic perceptions, and some of what you've talked about are anecdotes, and they're very specific to, if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics data, hiring is still happening at a pretty high rate. Quit rates are still, last I looked, were still at about Mm -hmm. 4 million, maybe a little under that. People are still choosing layoffs in some pockets have gone up, particularly in some of the technology companies. So some of what we're seeing in the media has been more technology-centered. But what you're talking about, I relate to the concept of respect. And anytime an organization treats someone in a way where they feel disrespected, they're not going to forget about that. That's Mm -hmm. that pent-up kind of piece that we were talking about earlier, and they're going to remember that. And disrespect is toxic. We ask a question at work, are you treated with respect? One to five scale. For people that don't give a five to that, they're disrespected in some way. You've got to give a strongly agree to that to really feel you're respected at work. So anything that kind of departs from that can be toxic for people and they'll remember that. And so I think how people are treated, if layoffs have to happen in organizations, if we just go back to early on in the COVID experience with furloughs and layoffs, I think part of that pent up piece that we're talking about was how people were treated. You know, if they're given a furlough, how were they treated during that time by their employer? I think people remembered some of those things. And there's quite a bit of variance in how people were treated. There's some people who were treated really well, and they remember that too. So yeah, I would relate to that concept of respect. What would be your advice to CEOs who are thinking about laying people off? You know, there's another dimension of this that I wanted to mention, which is, and this may be happening outside of technology firms, where they're using the momentum of and the visibility of companies laying people off to say, let's stack rank our people and then let go the bottom certain number, certain percentage. So they're using it to weed people out. And in many cases, people are saying, well, I had no idea I wasn't performing well, but they didn't really necessarily have a business need the business wasn't in dire shape there. They needed to lay people off, but they chose to do it as a way of sort of eliminating a certain number of people that they think aren't really contributing or performing rather than manage those people out or give them an opportunity to improve before they do that. I think anytime you can set someone up to be successful outside of your company, you build your employment brand. Uh, Part of the employee experience is how people are exited Mm. and what happens and how they're set up for success. And I'm talking about beyond like unethical things that might be happening in the organization where the people just need to be gone. But outside of some of those ethical things, it starts with the employee experience before people are let go. And it starts with how people are hired and onboarded and the full experience, how they're treated from an engagement standpoint, how they're managed in terms of performance. That's a big point. And what you just said, Mark, was a lot of organizations or individuals don't know how they compare to other people from a performance standpoint. Having performance management figured out is really important. And that's changed a lot in in recent years. And I think organizations are starting to get a little bit better at it. But performance management isn't separate from engagement. It's, It's part of how you engage people. But people need to know how they're doing individually. They 
need to know how well they're collaborating with colleagues and they need to know the value they're bringing to customers so that it is clear to them what their contribution is. And if they are providing value to the organization, then how they're respected when they're let go and many organizations will help people see what other opportunities there might be. I think anytime an organization has to do layoffs and they provide options for their employees or former employees in terms of what's out there, they've built up a reputation when they do that, an employment reputation. And right now, what happens inside organizations leaves organizations very quickly through reputation and through social media. And that employment brand, I think, is really important to organizations. Included in that is how you handle people when you have to, you know, economics demand that you have to make some decisions that aren't the decisions you want to make, you know, but sometimes you have to, you have to run a business and you've got to make tough decisions sometimes, but how those are handled. And if you consider the individual, the fact that they have a family, the fact that they, it might be somebody that you would want to bring back because they built up some equity in the organization, but also they might be a source of the reputation of your organization. You know, people communicate with one another. There's social networks out there that influence employment. So employment brand really does matter, right? That's your oh, yeah. That's your point. Okay. I'm happy to hear that. And it matters even more because even before people leave, they're communicating through social media what they're experiencing. So how people are treated in the culture, we talked about culture a little bit ago. The real culture in an organization is important. We're starting to do a number of, uh, we call them culture audits with organizations. And I think it's really the right starting place in most organizations, to really get to know them, what their aspirations are for their culture and what the barriers are to them getting there. And I think organizations can be very intentional about their culture, which then affects their employment brand. Let's talk about hybrid working. And this is interesting because I'm seeing, we're seeing companies really pushing back on people who want to work remotely and defining a certain number of days and so you've got the two that really stand out for me are Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan. They've just built a brand new headquarters on Park Avenue and he wants it occupied. And so he demanded that all of his senior managers be in the office five days a week. So no hybrid for them. And then Bob Iger at Disney wants his people in the office four days a week. But one of the most important assertions that you make in your book is that hybrid is here to stay. And so why do CEOs see this so differently than people that are working remotely? And where do you think this is going to go? Is Jamie Dimon's example going to be followed by other CEOs? Or is there going to be a continued accommodation for people to work hybrid schedules? There really appears to be some leveling off in the data in terms of what people are doing now. It's not changing much from a quarterly. We're doing surveys every quarter and the percentage of people and their preferences and all that has been staying very steady. And it really appears in the data that hybrid is here to stay and that a high percentage of people will have hybrid type jobs. I think every organization needs to figure out what their own formula is that works for them. We know in our broad data that when we ask employees, does your organization require you to do certain things, be in the office certain days, that that relates to lower levels of engagement. So leadership is very nuanced right now. I'm not, for me to speak directly about JP Morgan or about Disney, I would want to first do a culture audit and really think about what their aspired culture is, what they want their brand to be and what their purpose is and really look closely at how their organization functions to comment directly about those companies. But I can speak to what we're seeing generally in the data. And we're finding for people in remote-ready jobs, 
you know, where there's a certain degree of collaborative work that two to three days in the office is where engagement appears to be maximized. I think that it's important that we realize that people have learned some things during this forced experiment and we've got to honor some of their autonomy they've learned about. You're not going to strip that away. That's that, that endowment effect. But at the same time, it does take strong leadership to say, we need some coordination around this so that we're together at the same time. And so that we do maintain an in-person culture. Does that mean we need to go to five days? Does it mean we need to go to four days? I think that depends on the organization to figure that out. But I think to do it right, we've got to honor that autonomy. We've got to think seriously about how much work is done independently. I do think the message has to be sent with upper management and leadership in terms of uh, following what they're asking other people to do. So they've got to start there. And if you're going to say, well, we're going to be together two to three days and here's our high collaboration days Leadership's more nuanced than ever, but we've got to bring some clarity to those nuances. And we just kind of put out there, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, those are the days that people are more likely to say they want to be in the office. It doesn't mean that some companies won't say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or some other days. But the key is that you say, here's when we're together. It doesn't mean you can't make exceptions, but it's a promise that we need to ask employees to make to their colleagues. We don't think that it works well to make it in general. We don't think it works well to make it a blanket requirement or to say, come whenever you want, right? It's just, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's no coordination in that. And people get frustrated because they come in and nobody else is there. So people need to know what to expect of their colleagues too. And I think too often as a result of everything we've learned, too often people think about what's good for me and they don't have strong leadership and management that's really pushing them a little bit and saying, oh, what's good for your colleagues? What's good for our customers? And that's part of the requirement, too, and we all have to consider that. Um, And then that takes strong leadership. If people feel that their leadership cares about them, they're going to be fine with that. They're going to understand that. It's objective. You know, we're running a business here. We have a responsibility to our colleagues. We have a responsibility to our customers. And we're going to develop a culture that meets both ends, you know, that brings some clarity to those nuances and so that we have some clarity to our autonomy, that we've got some organized autonomy or rational autonomy, I think we called it in the book. There's some rationality around it so that we're actually building a real culture at the same time that we're allowing some freedom. But we can all understand what some of the CEOs are thinking. It's frustrating when you have this office space and you don't see people using it. Mm -hmm. And we do need people to be in together because we know in-person time matters where they can, you know, if you're in locations where you can be together. It's good to do that. It's part of human nature. It's part of how people have worked for since the Industrial Revolution. Coordination is key to getting that right. One of the things that you said is your key assertions is that nobody with any talent is ever going to work for a company that doesn't provide hybrid work schedules. So you've made that clear. Mm-hmm. But I just saw a corn ferry survey that showed that nearly all of executives that they surveyed. So it was 96% of them said that they notice and value work accomplished in the office far more than they do the work done from home. And I'm thinking a lot of these people are working from home themselves and they have to be able to self-assess that they're not any less productive at home and they're not doing less quality work from home. So where did that bias come from and how do you offset that so that managers can become more comfortable with the future that people are going to be continuing to work a hybrid schedule? Well, I think there are some basic biases that we're always going to bring into play. And I looked up that survey, by the way, and it was about 250 executives done by Envoy. I don't, I don't know. Uh, 96% seems really high to me. Me too. But let's just take it at face value and say, well, executives are going to have a tendency to put more value in people that show up. 
I think that's true. I think we have an in-person bias. We build trust in people that we make eye contact with. Video doesn't replicate everything that we get in person. And there's plenty of research to show that. We highlighted some of that in our book. And that's why we recommend that there is some in-person time where people are coordinated in terms of when they're together so that that can happen. So the spontaneous things like I talked about earlier do have a chance to happen. We can solve problems quicker. We can be more creative. We can have the kind of relationships and collegiality where spontaneous things happen that are not only productive, but also fun. But I think the people, particularly the young people that make a point to be together with their colleagues are going to see more development. You know, I noted a trend earlier where we're seeing drops in young people's development occurring in our data. They're reporting less opportunities to develop. And that wasn't the case historically. That's a responsibility not only for young people to make sure that they're having some presence because there is, and whether we like it or not, there is going to be somewhat of an in-person bias. But there's also a responsibility to the older people to mentor them, to be in there and to make sure that they're providing their role, that they're providing not just relationships, but also advice to young people who need the advice and they need to start building some of those relationships. Because left to our own accord, if we just do what's right for us individually, it's easier not to commute and we just stay at home all the time. We're going to have fewer of those connections and development's not going to happen at the same rate. And I think that could be devastating to organizations over time. Mm -hmm. And we've got to be intentional about that. And so I think it's important for not only executives to realize that, but for managers to understand it and for them to communicate that with younger people. There's going to be a natural tendency for you to get more attention and for you to have better career opportunities if you have some of that. doesn't mean you have to have 100% in-person time, but to make sure that you're intentional about when that happens and that it does happen. Just very directly, let me just ask you, is there any evidence that shows that people are any less productive when they're working at home? Just through the engagement findings that I cited earlier, that people are a little bit more likely to be engaged if they're in their office a certain amount of time. There are highly productive remote workers, but we have to think about the roles that people are in. And if they have task-oriented work, I think that can work really well. And it doesn't mean that remote workers can't be connected and they can't develop. They can, but managers need to be a lot more intentional about it. And the people themselves need to be a lot more intentional about it. We found that there's a balance in hybrid work where there's a certain amount of in-person time that really does matter. But on the other hand, having one meaningful conversation a week with your manager, and we'll, I can kind of break down what we mean by a meaningful conversation. Thank you. You're just going into the final question that I had for you, which is this. So thank you. Yeah. Br- brilliant transition. Okay. <laughs> well, that matters multiple times more than how often people are together, but it's got to be meaningful. And so there's a void that we can fill if we have the right kind of conversations. We did some diagnosis work on, you know, we asked people when was the last conversation they had with their manager and was it meaningful? Was it extremely meaningful? And a much smaller percentage of people than we would hope for said yes. It was around, I think, 19% said it was extremely meaningful. But of that group, we followed up and really wanted to know what happened during that conversation. And there were like about five patterns that emerged. One was I was recognized for something I did well. And to do that right, you've got to not only know how the person likes to be recognized, but you've got to know what they're doing. You know, you got to be in touch with their work. So there's that. Another area was collaboration. This speaks to an earlier point about how you decide where people work. We asked people, how do you decide when you're in the office? And most people said either our leadership decides, my supervisor decides, or I just do whatever I want. I kind of decide on my own. Only 13% of people said I decide with my team. 
those people had the highest levels of engagement, people who said they decided with their team. So the manager talking with them about how they collaborate was a really important factor in making that a meaningful conversation. So initiating that discussion and really nudging people into having the right kind of discussions with their team to decide when they're going to be together and all types of collaboration. I had Marcus Buckingham on the podcast and he made the assertion that the number of people a manager is capable of having a one-on-one conversation with weekly determines their span of control. So if you can talk to eight people every week consistently, then eight people is your span of control. If you can do 20, then 20 is your span of control. But if you have a team of 20 and you can only talk to 10, then you're not going to be effective. So when I read your book, I just thought, this is what you're saying as well. If you're just going to take one thing away, what's the job of a manager? And it doesn't matter whether it's remote work or hybrid work or in-person work. You need to have one meaningful conversation a week. And if you can't get it done with the number of people you have, then you might want to rethink what that span is. That's one takeaway. But another takeaway is what you actually do in those conversations. And Mm -hmm. goals and priorities, of course, is a part of that. you got to talk with the individual about their strengths as well so you can individualize it. If you don't individualize it, then it's not going to be nearly as useful. And we also found the total amount of time. This might be encouraging to some people. The conversation can be as short as 15 to 30 minutes. Sometimes it needs to be longer than that. But it has to be regular if it's 15 to 30 minutes. You can't take weeks off because then you have to cover for lost time and it needs to be a longer conversation then. But if you have a cadence to your weekly conversations with people, it can be as short as 15 to 30 minutes and you can build on the previous conversation and it doesn't have to be overly lengthy. So that was another takeaway from this piece of research. And of course, that work-life piece is important, how that's working out, and to know whether someone's a splitter or a blender, of course, is important. I was reading this in your book, and I was thinking, you know, one of the mistakes that I've seen managers do is you say, okay, well, you need to have a conversation with everyone who works for you. So they say, okay, I'm on board with that. And then they start to have those conversations, and they quickly become, where are you on this? When am I going to get this? How far are you on hitting this goal? And they miss the whole point of the meeting, which is to connect with the person and seeing how they're doing, seeing how they can be supported, making sure that they are giving them appreciation and recognition for the work that they've already done. You know, I believe you can't ask people to do something new until you've thanked them for what they've already done. Mm-hmm. Is this sort of the mistake that you see in these meetings where they start off in, with the good intention of doing it every week, but they just make them into a sales beating or, you know, utilitarian meeting? Yeah, it becomes more mechanical and then work is just a transaction. And there's not too many people that want work to only be a transaction. The role that human nature plays in in work is really important to think about in everything that we've had a chance to study. And there is a formula to how human nature works in an organization. It's not just talking about work itself. It's also the value that individual brings. So I think you're exactly right, Mark. Before we go, there's a lot in your book that we didn't get to talk to, but I cherry-picked the things that I I thought were most topical. So I hope I've done a good job of really getting into the book. But is there anything that we didn't discuss that you really want to emphasize for our audience? Anything from your new research that you'd like for them to always remember? We hit on a lot of the big ones. I do think starting with understanding an organization's cultural aspirations is really important. It's hard for me to 
really diagnose what an organization should do until I, I start with really understanding what they want to be as a culture and how everything else they choose to do fits into that and reinforces it. So what do you want your cultural identity to be as an organization and what's getting in the way of that and what are your current strengths related to that? And then every other decision that you make should be consistent with that. And the culture, of course, needs to be one that leads to great customer retention and customer results and I think too often right now, organizations are thinking about either accommodating what individuals have learned that they want as an individual or making command decisions. But the end all be all, everything should be pointed at customers. And we're, like I mentioned earlier, customer satisfaction has been deteriorating lately. And that's the biggest risk of all. Organizations exist, serve some customer. And if that starts deteriorating, then you know, organizations are kind of taking care of short-term fixes that aren't aligned with the longer-term goals. We've learned some things also, Mark, about having the right dashboard, and there's some elements that we think really align well with the new workplace. We talked about some of them, respect, and we need a really good measure of whether people feel they're treated with respect or not. We need a dashboard aligned with well-being. We need a dashboard aligned with performance management and having those meaningful conversations every week so we know how well we're doing on it. And we know where they're making progress. And then we need a dashboard that, as I just mentioned, is aligned with the customer, the promise we make to customer, and are we keeping those promises or not as an organization? So I think the dashboard components, and we've talked about some of the engagement trends and everything, but I think there's some elements that build on top of engagement going forward that are really important for this changed workforce. On behalf of my audience, Tim, thank you so very much for joining us. I know your book is coming out shortly, as is your new global workplace study. And we'll be looking forward to both of those. But thanks for giving us a little peek into all of that. And again, on behalf of my audience, thank you so very much. Thanks for having me again, Mark. And it's an honor to have broken your record as a number of... <laughs> Set the record. Yeah, exa- exactly. Right? Number three. Well, I appreciate that. Appreciate your interest in our work continuously, Mark, and integrating it into your book revision. And you've always been very interested and involved in, in Gallup's work and making it real for people and organizations. So appreciate that. I appreciate that very much. Best to you. Thank you so very much. You bet. Take care. Bye-bye. As I mentioned in the introduction, this episode concludes our season. And until we return, we'd be extremely grateful if you'd continue to support us in myriad ways. Recommending our show to others will help us greatly as we rely on the growth of our audience as an ongoing indicator of our impact. Buying copies of my book, Lead from the Heart for Yourself and His Gifts, is a huge way of showing support. It's received hundreds of fantastic reviews on Amazon and has been taught in 10 American universities. And last but not least, please invite me to come speak at your company meeting or conference. I thank you in advance for any support you can provide to encourage us to continue producing more episodes of our show. And I especially want to thank my team, starting with my producer, Eric Oz, whose masterful behind-the-scenes work all season long has made really easy listening for you. And I want to thank Mr. Ken Boynton, who encouraged me to start this podcast in the first place, and to my wonderful supporters, Carrie Finnessy, Anna Boynton, and Randy Yacht. Our theme song is Take the A-Train, a jazz standard written in 1939 by Billy Strayhorn that was the signature tune of the Duke Ellington Orchestra. Our version is performed by the masterful BBC Big Band Orchestra. And until we return, I leave you with my two constant reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Thank you.